Wow, we have a lot to cover tonight. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. New stuff. Okay, there's some announcements we need to make. One announcement is that we still need volunteers for cookies. We need a lot of cookies. It's a big number. I think it may be too big, but Anne's not here tonight to verify, but I saw the number 7,500. That's a lot of cookies. We go through a lot of cookies at the conference. We have a cookie-loving conference. You know, they just come for the cookies. But we need more volunteers for the cookies. Uh, there will not be Bible class. Spread the word far and wide. There will not be Bible class the Tuesday night before the conference. I thought that was self-explanatory because when we have the conference from Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we don't have Thursday night Bible class. The week of the conference, we just have the conference. That's sort of self-evident, I thought. But um, so we won't have the conf- uh, won't have Tuesday night Bible class. Uh, let me see what else. The picnic is on April the 16th, so make sure you have that on your calendars for April the 16th. That is the day after taxes are due, so you can all celebrate that you've gotten it done and out of the way, and you've supported the federal government once again. Let me see. Conference begins on the 16th on Wednesday night. Uh, everybody's invited. It's going to be a great conference. It's going to be live-streamed. And also most of the sessions are up on the Internet fairly quickly, not as quickly as normal because the sessions just follow one on the other, and that sort of overloads the computer. So um, that's the case. I think that's pretty much it. Anything else? Alan, can you think of anything? Okay. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study tonight, which will, I thinking this is going to conclude our study on inerrancy and infallibility for now, inerrancy and inspiration for now, we'll be back in First Peter next week, but who knows? I've just uncovered a lot of stuff just before I left the house, so uh, we may be teaching some things on the fly just as a little bit of a teaser for things to come as well, so we'll get to that in due time. But uh, we need to be prepared to study the Word, and so that means that we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with God. God's uh, righteousness means that we cannot come into his presence unless sin is dealt with. It's dealt with first and foremost at the cross when we trust Christ as Savior, but when we sin afterward, we still lose fellowship. And to recover fellowship is to um, means to simply confess or admit our sins to God, and he instantly forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all other unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to come together as a body of believers to study your word. Father, we trust in your word. We trust that your word accurately and precisely defines who you are and your plan for history and your plan for salvation, and that everything in your word is accurate as you revealed it in the original languages, and that as we study, we come to understand the truth that is there, and it shapes our thinking, our worldview, and the way in which we we live. And, Father, only through God the Holy Spirit can we live the Christian life of the church age. And we pray that we might be focused upon our diligent, consistent walk by the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of Scripture this evening, that that um, we might come to understand these things more clearly and our confidence will increase. Father, we also pray for those in the congregation who are at this time without jobs and without income and uh, the uncertainty that they face. Father, we pray for this time that as they're tested, that you would uh, encourage them and that the body of Christ might come together around them to pray for them and to help them as they can. Father, we pray for so many in the Houston area that face the same situation with the downturn in the economy, and we pray that, uh, especially in terms of the nation, that as we face this election season, season that, that things would begin to change and improve. But we know we go through these cycles just as we do in life, and these tests are designed to strengthen our faith, that we might have joy not based on our circumstances, but based on our relationship with you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's begin with um, turning in Matthew chapter 27 while I give you a little review. As we have said in almost the beginning of every session is we're studying in First Peter. That's why this is part of the First Peter series, but we have diverted to a doctrine, the doctrine of the uh, inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture because First Peter 1, uh, 10 through 12 talks about this process in the Old Testament, and a lot of people don't understand it. And this is a periodic, every 20, 30 years, we have to go through another battle for the Bible again. And this is raging throughout the conservative seminaries, not Chafer, not Tyndale, not, I think there's a free grace seminary in Georgia, not there, but in a number of other places. And the root of this is because back in the 70s, these young hotshot scholars, mostly baby boomers, got in their heads that they wanted to be a scholar like all the other scholars, sort of like we've been studying on Tuesday night. The Jews wanted to have a king like all the other nations. And so these scholars wanted to be scholars like all the other uh, scholars, and they wanted to have the respect of the Harvards and the Princetons and the Cambridge and Oxford and Edinburgh and Basel, etc. And so they went off to these schools and became infected in small degrees in a lot of cases, but it was still a viral infection that affected their view of Scripture. And they picked up ideas here and there that may have sounded good at the time, but they have come to characterize their thinking, and, and even though they may have only, let's say, run to the edge of the field and they're just running along the out-of-bounds line and maybe they didn't cross over, or maybe they crossed over just an inch, but their students are crossing over feet and yards outside, out of bounds. 
And in the last couple of generations we've seen, uh, since the 70s, we've seen some real shifts take place in places that, that are traditionally thought to affirm biblical inerrancy and infallibility. I looked at this definition, which hopefully many of you have, I know some people in, in the congregation have memorized this, that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, uh, personal feelings, or any other human factor, that his complete and coherent revelation or message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, this is a fundamental definition. One of the challenges that comes from those that reject traditional inerrancy, uh, they're espousing a view, the term that's been used is limited inerrancy, and basically what that means is the same old position that has been espoused by uh, those who reject the total authority of Scripture is that the Word of God is authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. So as long as the Bible's talking about the spiritual life or, G- or, or Jesus, uh, work on the cross or salvation, then it's accurate and inerrant. But when it talks about science or history or geography or some other things in those areas, then it's not inerrant. It, there are mistakes. And the question is, how do you decide what may be mistakes or not? And this permeates a lot of thinking. And in a lot of ways, this is, this is, uh, this is very, very subtle. But the scripture tells us that this, is, that God is the author of scripture. One of the critiques that has been made by a scholar, uh, by the name of William Lane Craig, who was a well-known apologist and philosopher theologian, is that, that Inerrancy is just based upon deduction. But deductive logic, which is a problem for some theologians and some pastors, deductive logic is not the source of the doctrine of inerrancy. And we studied this. I talked about uh, passages like 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. And these passages clearly teach that. So the deduction is derived from conclusions that are that are um, that are arrived at through induction so the scripture says god is the source of scripture god has breathed it out scriptures also teach that god is true therefore the scripture is true we went through that deduction but the major premise and the minor premise in that syllogism were derived inductively from scripture so craig's Argument and the argument of some is that this is just a theological deduction that's imposed on Scripture is 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 fallacious. Scripture is breathed out by God. This is where we understand inspiration, which is the first part of this three-legged stool illustration I've given you. That all biblical truth, Christian belief, everything we believe, is grounded upon the authority of the Word of God. And that is a three-legged stool, inspiration, which emphasizes the origin of the Bible, infallibility, which emphasizes the uh, authority of the Bible, and inerrancy, which uh, describes the accuracy of the Bible. And we've looked at these slides 
each each time, origin of the Bible, uh, inspiration emphasizes origin of the Bible, infallibility, the authority and enduring nature of the Bible, and inerrancy, the accuracy of the Bible. Now, what we've done last time was to look at some of the alleged contradictions that we find in the Old Testament. And we went through those, and I started off, if you remember, talking about the methodology, that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So you have the study of the Bible, but if you and that's the right thing. But if you study the Bible the wrong way, in other words, if you adopt a wrong methodology, then you're going to arrive at wrong conclusions. And those wrong conclusions are going to eventually attack and and um, uh, destroy what you're trying to protect, which is biblical truth. So we have to affirm the truth of Scripture and how we handle the text, which is through a a method of, of interpretation that is substantiated through looking at how the Bible interprets itself that is a plain, normal uh, interpretation of Scripture, assigning normal uh, modes of language and expression and communication to the language of Scripture. And that is called uh, the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. The historical part in that term is emphasizing that we understand how the, the Bible uses these words and phrases within the framework of its history at the time in which it was written, and that uh, grammar shapes the meaning of language. And so history, we in, in that sense, we view history as that which is objective and, un, and, and knowable, and that we can have an accurate, though not an exhaustive, knowledge of, of history. That is our presupposition. And grammar is that language conveys meaning and that that meaning ultimately resides in the mind of the author and the intent of the author, and it is not determined by the mind of the receiver, the person who hears uh, uh, the Bible or who reads the Bible, does not assign his own meaning to the text. And that is, that's, that's not something new, but it has been developed tremendously in the last hundred years through the philosophy of postmodernism that is really built on a Kantian philosophy that we can't know things as they are. We can only know things as we perceive them. And, and Immanuel Kant put forth his philosophy in his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, that came out in about the same time as the American War for Independence, uh, 1776. And it, it quickly spread through the ranks of the intelligentsia in Europe and began to shape the philosophical uh, thinking of the early 19th century uh, professors and elites and impacted how they understood history, how they understood um, uh, truth, how they understood uh, knowledge and, and the Bible. And so historical criticism is an outgrowth of, of that. And I'll talk a little bit more about it as we go through uh, the lesson tonight, the class tonight. And what I want to start with tonight is talking about these alleged problems in the New Testament. We talked about Old Testament last time, talk about New Testament this time. And I want to start with a situation that is that is current and it is, there's a lot, on, you can go out, I understand, on the Internet and watch some videos on this, 
and you can uh, uh, read about it. You can go to, you can just Google a couple of names I'll give you in a minute. You can Google those names, and you can just read more than you ever wanted to know about some of these issues. And this is a, a, a huge issue going on right now in New Testament scholarship. We, uh, I read to you much of the article that um, Bob Wilkin wrote, Can We Trust New Testament uh, Professors? And that's just the tip of the iceberg that is floating around in uh, modern evangelical scholarship. So the passage at, question, at issue here is Matthew 27, 51 to 54. You might want to turn in your Bibles there. Matthew tw- uh, chapter 27 uh, describes... Uh, the arrest of Jesus, it describes the, uh, crucif- the trials, the crucifixion of Jesus and his, uh, and his burial as well. And then the resurrection doesn't occur until the next chapter. But what we read in verses 51 and following are part of the story. This is one of those episodes that's only told in Matthew. It's one of those episodes that a lot of people aren't familiar with unless they've read their Bible. And it occurs, or Matthew inserts this right after Jesus dies in verse 50. And I want to go back to verse 46. Let's go back to verse 45. And I want to read the context to you because the way we read this context is that it is talking about history. It's describing events that occurred in space-time history on a specific day uh, just before sundown, the Passover day in uh, in Israel, just before Passover came at, at, at sundown. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. That's from 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness over all the land. That's describing uh, specific e- events. Uh, you, you have a chronological note there from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. You can't say, well, you know, that could have been from uh, 6 a.m. until 9 a.m. No, you have to understand it historically. This is on the, uh, on the uh, Jewish uh, clock. begins at a sunrise. Sixth hour to the ninth hour, there's darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a translation. So did Jesus actually say that or not? It is presented by Matthew. This is, this is a historical record of exactly what was going on. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we get to the passage in question. When Jesus died physically, verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Now, this isn't describing these events in order, but it is describing what happens after Jesus died, just listing the different things that happened. The veil splits from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, 
and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, period. If you read this in the Greek, it is a listing this and this and this and this and this and this. There is no appearance of any kind of break in the description of the different things that happened following Jesus' death. Now, the thing that we're focused on is what occurs in verses 52 and 53. The graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had... See, that that semicolon really isn't there. I mean, in the Greek, it's just this and this and this and this. So the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, and then we have the time frame there that after his resurrection... And then they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, this this is the issue. Now, what happened in 2009 was a scholar by the name of Michael Lacona wrote a book, a extremely long book, some 700-plus pages, that was on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, 2011. He published this 718 page tome to defend the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, most of what he said was accurate and true, and he did a a, a very good job, from what the reviews say, um, about defending the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. But in a number of places, he questions the historicity of certain things that are in the account of Jesus' death burial, and res- resurrection. And one of those is this event in Matthew chapter uh, 27. He calls this a strange little text. He claims that this is parallel to Greco-Roman bi- biographies, bios, that use, pheno- quote, phenomenal language in a symbolic manner. In other words, what he is saying is, is, and this is a, a very popular trend now among evangelical New Testament scholars, is that they say that, that, that in order to solve what they think are contradictions in the, te- in the text and contradictions between the different gospel accounts, what they, they claim is that, that the standards for biography at that time, were not the same as the standards today. As a standard today, we have to footnote everything, and everything is given with precise reference. But at that time, when you look at the uh, at Plutarch's lives and you look at others, that they embellished accounts. There was a lot of legend and myth that was included, in, and you have to sift through it. And so they don't have this rigid standard of accuracy which we have in, in, in modern times. So he's using this, the, the standard of the world uh, to be his guide for the writing of, of biography. He also says that this is uh, uh, poetry, it's poetic, and he says it's legend, and it includes special effects. Here are some of the statements that he makes in the, in the book. Pages 552 to 553, he says, It seems to me that an understanding of the language in Matthew 27, 52 to 53 as special effects with eschatological Jewish text and thought in mind is most plausible. 
Now, see, what he's doing is he's using these uh, extra-biblical Jewish texts to form a standard, just as he used the Greco-Roman biology, uh, biographies to form a standard, and he's using that to evaluate, uh, to evaluate Scripture. Now, hold that thought. Pause. In 1983, a man by the name of Robert Gundry was kicked out of the Evangelical Theological Society. This was a huge thing. Gundry had written a commentary on Matthew in the late, I think it came out in the late 70s or right around 1980, in which he said that you had, in order to clear up these apparent contradictions in the Gospels, you had to understand that Matthew was writing according to Jewish Midrash. And, and so he is, uh, Gundry was, uh, removed. His membership was canceled. He was voted out of the Evangelical Theological Society. And it was a big scandal among evangelical scholars at the time. Uh, and so, uh, basically what Michael Lacona is doing is the same kind of thing. Now, I don't think I gave you background on Lacona. Lycona formerly taught at the faculty of Southeastern Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was a seminary founded by Norm Geisler. Now, Dr. Geisler was on the faculty of Dallas when I was a student back in the late 70s, and he is well-known. The guy is a writing machine. I, I, I would say he's probably written over over 75 or 100 books, and he's written I don't know how many articles. The guy is phenomenal. Um and he has a couple of different uh, doctorates, and, and he's, he's, a, he's a very orthodox scholar. And he's in his probably mid to late 80s at this point. So uh, Lycona was uh, basically asked to leave the faculty because of some comments he made in a, in a debate in 2009. And, then, and at this time the, that his book came out in 2011, uh, he was serving on... Uh, a, a, a North American Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention. He was the apologetics coordinator of the North American Mission Board. He also had something to do with Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, his background was that he had a, a, both a bachelor's and master's degree from Liberty University and his Ph.D. in New Testament studies from the University of Pretoria uh, in, in South Africa. And so when he published this book, on the resurrection of Christ, and he challenges, um, you know, the historicity of the account of the resurrection of the saints. It, it was a small uh, uh, bunker buster bomb going off in evangelicalism, and it's been exploding more and more down through the last uh, last five years. And it's not something you would know about or that I would know about, except that in the process of this, uh, some of these uh, debates that went on about about his orthodoxy, he got picked up as a faculty member at a little school over here off of the Southwest Freeway called Houston Baptist University. So he's he's local. And uh, uh, I haven't heard much about him locally, but this battle going on, uh, has gone on for a while. Now, he used to teach at Southeastern Seminary, and, uh, yeah. Back in the 70s, was there a more definite definition of evangelical then than there is now? Of evangelicalism? No, but it, you're, that's a good question, Al. In 1976 or 77, 
There was a group of over 180 evangelical scholars that met for quite some time and formulated what's called the Chicago Biblical... The ICBI, the International um, Conference on Biblical Inerrancy, which you you can Google that, the International Conference on Biblical Inerrancy, and they wrote an extensive, extensive um, definition of biblical inerrancy. And this was signed off on by, it included scholars from across the theological and denominational spectrum. I, there were, I had several faculty members at, when I was a student at Dallas, because that came out in my second year, our first or second year when I was in seminary. And there were there were uh, a number of fa- faculty members. Elliot Johnson, who's spoken at the Chafer Conference, was was part of that. Um, I don't think Ryrie was, but there were several others that were at Dallas. Uh, there was um, Bob Thomas, Robert Thomas, who's also spoken at the Chafer Conference, who's uh, spent a lot of his career at the Master Seminary. He was one of the signers. Norm Geisler was one of the one of the signers, and. And that whole statement, which I don't know how many pages it is because I'm looking at it on the Internet, and you don't know how many pages it is, but it's several pages long, and it is, is well written. They, they state positively what, what inerrancy is. They give all the Scripture references, and they say what we mean is this, and we don't mean that. What we mean is this, and we don't mean that. And that's how you learn, is you not only have to state positively what something means, but you have to state negatively what you don't mean by it. And they did a, a fabulous job of that. And in the early 80s, before this thing with Robert Gundry came up, in the early 80s, the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the uh, sort of the academic professional organization that uh, all uh, Bible college professors and seminary professors and a lot of pastors are part of. I've been a member of it until recently. I got fed up with some of their stuff and I just quit. Um, but the only thing you have, to, there are only two things in their in their doctrinal statement that you have to affirm. One is the Trinity, and two is uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, it's a very brief statement. We believe the word, I think it's something to the effect, we believe the, God, the Word of God is breathed out by God, or the Bible is breathed out by God and is, is uh, inerrant in the original writings. It's, it's a very brief statement. But in 1981, in order to clarify it, 81 or 82, they adopted the uh, ICBI statement, the Ch- Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, as their definition of inerrancy. Okay, so this was what Gundry is held up against, and this is the standard that um, uh, that that Lycona is being held up against. And if you read the literature, they're constantly going to be citing from the uh, Chicago Statement on B- Biblical Inerrancy uh, to to show that he has violated this this traditional standing. And this is one of the things in that article that that I read at the beginning of this series. By, by Wilkin is that, that, that he quotes Craig Blomberg, who teaches at Denver Seminary, is saying that in today's environment, 97% of the members of ETS, in Blomberg's opinion, could not affirm what is written in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And that's what, looking around this congregation... That is what you have been taught your entire life. That is what I've been taught my entire life. 
That is what was the standard view at Dallas Theological, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. So what Lycona has done, he not only questions that, he also questions uh, the historicity of the angels at the tomb of Jesus in Matthew uh, or in Mark sixteen five through seven, thinking of that as possibly poet, just uh, just legend or myth, and he uh, questions a number of other things that are included in um, in the resurrection account of Jesus, and then he comes along and he says that that. Um, but the account of Christ's resurrection is is accurate, and the account of Christ's resurrection is uh, we can depend on every detail of that. But it runs into some other other problems, and the problem is that he is using as as popular among many uh, New Testament scholars today to one degree or another. So this is a sliding scale. I'm not, not every one of them approaches this the same way, but it's something we need to be aware of, is they use this uh, methodology of historical criticism. Now, I talked about that last time in the introduction, talking about how that affects the understanding of, of uh, uh, for example, Genesis 1 through 3, and it's a methodology which basically dehistoricizes the text. You look at the text, something tells you, well, this can't be true, so, well, we, we assign it to a certain literary genre, and then we can say, well, that's not really talking about actual literal, literary, literal history. So, Lycona takes as his presupposition that the writers of Scripture are using the human viewpoint standards of biography that was accepted in the culture of the Greco-Roman world at the time. And I want to also note that to a much lesser degree... Professors at Dallas Seminary, such as Dan Wallace, who's very good in Greek, but his theology leaks out at bad points, but it's still he's written a great Greek grammar, and Daryl Bach, who's from Houston and, and been at Dallas for a number of years, use the same basic methodology. They, they don't go as far as Lycona did. They don't go as far as Craig Blomberg does, but they, in my opinion, they've crossed the line. They may not have gone very far out of bounds. These other guys have gone further out of bounds, but they're adopting that same uh, that same idea, and that is that you can go to extra biblical sources to establish criterion by which you evaluate uh, the scripture. So, I just want to give you about eight observations on what goes on here. First problem, which I've already alluded to, is that the problem is using extra biblical literature and human viewpoint cultural norms as the standards for evaluating divine revelation. And this is the same problem you run into. I've talked about this many times before. When you categorize prophetic literature and scripture as apocalyptic genre, and apocalyptic genre is an actual genre, but it's in... um, it's in the intertestamental literature. It's in the pseudepigrapha. It's not in scripture. Scripture is prophetic literature. And I remember talking with Andy Woods when he had to take a doctoral course on on um, uh, on uh, uh, apocalyptic literature in the New Testament department at Dallas, and just going uh, butting heads with the professor because he refused to accept the fact that a 
apocalyptic genre was legitimate. So you're imposing this extra biblical standard on the scripture, and then you can you, it, it, it allows you to do away with things that you uh, would have some some problems with that you don't think uh, is defensible. So this is this is the standard approach using a human viewpoint standard to judge and evaluate the scripture. Second. Uh, their basic attempt and approach is through this use of, of literary genre. Now, you know, genre may be an unfamiliar term to some of you, but if you read mystery novels, a mystery novel is a genre. It fits certain categories. You pick up an Agatha Christie book, and you know what to expect. You pick up a Nero Wolfe book, you know what to expect. You you pick up a romance novel, you know what to expect. That's a different genre. You pick up a historical novel. You read Herman Wouk, uh, Winds of War and War and Remembrance. That's a historical novel, but you know what to expect. Those are different genre. They have diff- different um, different categories, so that they're using genre as a way to reinterpret uh, the scripture. And so, if they come along and say the language in Matthew 27 is poetry and legend, it's not meant to be history. Then they can say, on the one hand, I believe it's inerrant, but because we have a different genre here. Uh, it's not to be taken as explaining actual historical fact. This is what they do with, with Genesis 1 through 3. It's an origin myth, therefore we need to understand it that way. We believe it's inerrant, but it's, but uh, only because it's not history. So they're dehistoricizing, uh, the text. And so they, they, uh, are like, uh, Lyconic says that this episode of the resuscitation of the dead saints fits, uh, within, um, is just legend, but we would say that it fits the flow of the narrative. Everything surrounding it is historical and literal. The veil is torn from top to bottom, and it just goes on. The earthquakes, the rocks were split, all of this terminology. A third observation is that the resurrection of the saints in this passage is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus. So that Jesus is the first fruits, and they are the next following Paul's order given in 1 Corinthians 15.23. And the language that we find, words like raise and resurrection in Matthew 27, are the same words we find describing the resurrection of Jesus in the Greek in 1 Corinthians 15.23. So it, you open the door to to a direct assault on the resurrection resurrection of Jesus. A fourth observation is that the text clearly states that that these saints came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection. The tombs are opened with the earthquake that occurs at the time of the death of Christ. And um, um, we're going to hear about that. Uh, Steve Austin's going to talk about the geology of the earthquake at the time of the cross and, and as evidence for the crucifixion when, when he's here at the conference, and he's going to connect some of these dots to that. Um, so th- so that may, that's very clear. Uh, fifth point, the evidence for their resurrection is the same as that for Jesus' resurrection. The tombs are open, the text says. Um, verse 52, the graves are open, the bodies of the saints uh, were raised, they came out of their graves so that the tombs were empty, and they went into Jerusalem and they appeared to many people. 
A sixth observation is some of the other events are also confirmed in Mark and Luke, including the tearing of the veil in the temple. So even though the resurrection of the saints is only mentioned in Matthew, the other events surrounding it that are mentioned in Mark and Luke uh, uh, are also included. The seventh observation is the key terms are used throughout this section with a obviously literal meaning is intended. Earth, quake, temple, veil, rocks, tombs, bodies, asleep, excuse me, all of which speak of a physical, of physical realities in, in the New Testament. These are not terms that are used metaphorically. And then last point is part of his argument is that this is the only place this is mentioned, so maybe it didn't happen. Well, let me see. Jesus, uh, on, the, the account of Jesus talking to Nicodemus is only in one place. It's in John 3. The account of Jesus talking to the woman at the well is only in one place, and that's in John chapter 4. Uh, the episode of Lazarus and the rich man is only, and, and, and uh, the, the Jesus uh, talking to Zacchaeus. Those are only mentioned one time, but once is enough in, in the word of God. So what we have is an attempt to do away with the infallibility of Scripture. Now, one of the the issues here, I want to say some more things about historical criticism, which I talked about last time, and just to give us a little more information about this, historical criticism is a product of the Enlightenment. Remember, the Enlightenment is a period in history that starts from about 1600 and goes to 1800, and it is the reaction to the role of the church and the authority of the church during the period of the Middle Ages. Uh, the term enlightenment is to boost their, uh, boost their ego in contrast to the dark ages where people were under the so-called authority of the church and the authority of scripture. And so it's the rise of rationalism and the rise of empiricism as the ultimate dis- de- uh, determiner of truth. So rationalism is the view that unaided human reason could determine all truth that man could determine even the existence of God just by his unaided reason alone. doesn't need revelation. The second was empiricism. The problem was that Descartes, who's the first thinker in the, in the rationalism uh, tradition, uh, grounds his thinking on this idea that I think, uh, therefore I am. But... The criticism is he can't get out of his own head. He can't get out of his head to prove the existence of anything other than his own existence. So rationalism ultimately collapses, and it's replaced by empiricism, which is the view that man, through the use of his senses, can arrive at ultimate truth. The problem is there's always new data. So empiricism collapsed with the um, critique of David Hume in the late 1700s, and out of that collapse, you have the rise of Kantian philosophy that you can't know truth objectively anymore. You can only know it as you, as you perceive it. And so this leads to the destruction of, of absolute truth in, in, in modernism. And, and it finally goes to seed and the beginning of postmodernism really is the beginning of the early 20th century. So they, they, they develop even though historical criticism can trace its roots back into the 1600s, it really begins to flourish in the early 1800s. 
And it's really a misnomer. And this is what happens. It's, it's, it's the double speak or the new speak in George Orwell's 1984, using traditional language to mean something other than what it's always meant. And we find examples of that all the time in, in, in modern politics and in a lot of modern theology. They talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't mean what you hear. When somebody stands in the pulpit and says, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, they may not believe, they may not be talking about a physical bodily resurrection. And I, I went to a church here in Houston where the pastor gave a great Easter message, except I knew the guy was neo-Orthodox and he didn't believe in, an, in a literal physical bodily resurrection. The people I was with said, no, he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. And I said, well, you know, I said, you're uneducated. He doesn't believe in it. He's neo-Orthodox. He doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture or miracles or the virgin birth. And so a lot of people get taken in by this. So historical criticism is one of those types of words. The, let's talk about the two words there, historical and criticism. Historical is usually taken to mean something that occurred in space-time history. That's what you, most of you mean by it. That's what I mean by it. If something is, is historical, it actually happened, and it is verifiable through eyewitness accounts as well as uh, documentary and, and other types of evidence. It refers to something that occurred objectively in space-time history and has been observed and reported by others. Thus, we know that the Bible presents real history, uh, and it pres purports to present eyewitness accounts of events that occurred in space-time history. And through the use of extra-biblical evidence that we discover through archaeology and other disciplines, uh, the documents, monu monuments, and inscriptions, that we can confirm that certain historical events and people existed and took place. Also, cultural norms and practices. We can look at the lifestyle presented in Genesis 12 through 50 in the early patriarchal period around 2000 to 1800 B.C., and we can say, look at what we've learned through archaeology about that period and say the Bible describes the cultures and norms of that time period in the Middle East so that we can have an affirmation of biblical validity. However, in postmodernism, knowledge is suspect. No one can truly know anything in postmodernism. Uh, you can know, you have your truth and I have my truth, but nobody knows true truth. Nobody knows truth objectively anymore. Nobody can. They, they reject that presuppositionally before you even get started. So in postmodernism, you can't have true objective knowledge, and therefore you can't truly know history. You can only know people's perceptions of history. See how that ties back to Immanuel Kant. Now let me tell you a little story about this. Uh, there was a guy in this church a while back who was going to Dallas Seminary seven or eight years ago, and he had recorded a class that was taught on church history. And um, when he left the church, uh, he, they, uh, he said to me, you know, you need to go back and listen to those lectures by this particular professor. And so the next January, I was in Kiev, and I keep a lot of different theological lectures on my, I think I was using an iPod at the time, and so I hook this up to speakers, and while I get when I get up in the morning, I'm making breakfast and doing all this, I listen to these lectures. And I had 
sort of spot listened to some of this guy's lectures, but I never started with the very first lecture. And so I'm cooking my bacon and eggs and fixing my coffee and everything while I'm wandering around the apartment. I'm listening to this lecture. And it's the first class, and he's going through the syllabus, and he's talking about the objectives in the church history class. And he got down to like the third or fourth point, and he's talking about this point, and he's talking about, and, and as he was explaining it, he was explaining that you cannot know real history as it took place. You can only know the perceptions of the people uh, at the time, but you can't know what really happened. I thought I was going to stroke out right there. I immediately went in, uh, flipped on Skype, sent emails to Charlie and to Tommy, and said, okay, this is on my website. You can listen to this lesson. I've just uploaded it and listen between 11 minutes in and 16 minutes in and and then give me a call on Skype. Ten minutes later, Tommy's calling me. He was about to stroke out. John Hannon never taught us to think about history that way. This was pure postmodernism and an approach to, to the history of Christianity. And that is what has suddenly taken over in the kind of thinking that you find in the history. Now, that guy is no longer uh, at Dallas Seminary. He's gone on to uh, other pastures. So the point I'm making is that in postmodernism, you can't have true objective knowledge. You can't know history as objective reality. And I have a quote here from uh, David Farnell in an article he wrote in this tome I'm reading on... um, vital issues in inerrancy, and he says that the assumption of postmodernism is that all history is by its very nature only a subjective interpretation of, quote, surviving traces of events, unquote. That quote is from Farnell. The rest of it is my language. The assumption of postmodernism is that all history by its very nature is only subjective interpretation. And in that view, objective knowledge of historical events is impossible. So when they talk about historical, they're not talking about objective knowledge of history. They're talking about just people's subjective impressions of what might have taken place. Now, the word criticism traditionally means to apply objective criteria to documents in order to analyze content and style for authenticity and meaning. But in historical criticism, the goal is to change the plain, normal sense of the text to conform to an already predetermined meaning that fits the worldview and assumption of the critic. It's not to evaluate the document. It's to redefine and reinterpret the document. Um, So the historical critic's goal is to interpret the biblical text according to the current fads of the time. Now, last week we saw that in reference to Genesis 1 through 3, that the text presents itself as talking about space-time history, but modern critics have their epistemological grid set ahead of time by modern science. So the time frame of modern science is what shapes their thinking. They read that into the text and say, this can't be history. And so they have to figure out some way uh, to redefine the plain meaning of the text, and they do so by saying it's not meant to be history, it's meant to be figurative. Now, in the New Testament, and I just came up with, learned this late this afternoon, 
There's a huge conflict over Matthew chapter 23. Now, if you have your Bible with you, you can flip back to Matthew 23. And if you have, uh, you know, one of these heretical Bibles like I have that's got red letters in it, you know why it's uh, heretical to have a red letter Bible? Because it's basically saying those words of Jesus are more accurate than everything else. A red-letter Bible is, by definition, anti-inerrancy. It's all the words of Jesus. It's all the mind of Christ. But So I've got this red-letter Bible, and if you look at chapter 23, if you've got a red-letter Bible, Jesus says everything in chapter 23 except the first verse. Okay? That's the value of a red-letter Bible is you can say, oh, where's Jesus talking? Okay, that's where he's talking. So Matthew chapter 23, which has um, 39 verses, is Jesus' final indictment of the religious system of Israel, of their legalism, of their antagonism to the grace orientation of the, of the Old Testament. And so this is that head-on collision that occurs between, uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so there's this huge conflict here. Jesus just rakes the Pharisees over the coals, and in that chapter he pronounces eight woes over them and challenges the very core Pharisaical theology. Now, we'll get there in two or three months. And uh, I read this late this afternoon, like about 5.30, and I got alerted to this on about four four lines in this article that I quoted a minute ago by, uh, um, by Farnell. And so I sent him an email, actually because it was a typo and a whole sentence was left out of a footnote. And we had an interchange, and I said, okay, I'm getting to Matthew 23 in a few weeks. What do you, uh, uh, where are your sources here? You don't cite anything in this in this chapter for your sources. And he said, well, take a look if you have the Jesus crisis. And I said, well, it's sitting right here by my desk. Uh, if you have that, look at pages 24 and 25, and that will give you an idea of what's going on in contemporary scholarship. And basically what happens in uh, contemporary scholarship is because of political correctness, uh, this kind of a challenge to Judaism, to Pharisaical Judaism, uh, if this really happened, they, this is interpreted as an anti-Semitic attack. If you really believe that this is what Jesus did, then in some circles this is viewed as being, it's not politically correct, it borders on anti-Semitism, and this is a product of post-Holocaust hermeneutics where uh, in, the Jewish anti, in the Jewish community those who are dealing with anti-Semitism want to trace the roots of Christian anti-Semitism to the cross. I'm going to learn a lot more about this in the coming weeks, but but we'll get there. But this has impacted a lot of evangelicals, and the historical critical position is that that this is a misrepresentation of Pharisaism, that this tension wasn't actually between Jesus and the Pharisees at Jesus' time, but it was between Matthew's assumed community that he's writing to and the Jews of Matthew's day. How do you like that? Okay. So, you know, like it was, uh, what time was it? It was 6.35, and uh, Farnell emailed me. That Farnell's going to be the speaker at the Chafer Conference in 2017. So Farnell emails this and says, look at these, these pages. So I, I said, okay, I've got it right here, and I looked at it, and I said, I'm just going to read part of this. One of the advocates of this position is a guy named Donald Hagner. 
And Hagner writes this. He says, it's a tragedy that from this chapter in Matthew, that the word Pharisee has come to mean popularly a self-righteous, hypocritical prig. Unfortunately, not even Christian scholarship was able over the centuries to rid itself of an unfair bias against the Pharisees. So basically, he's saying this isn't historically accurate. So what do you do in historical criticism? You figure out a way to to show that this is, by virtue of, of either genre or something else, not really what, what, Jesus, what Jesus said. And so that's, um, that's what he says. Hagner goes on to say, Phariseeism was at heart, though tragically miscarried, a movement for righteousness. This basic drive for righteousness accounts for what may be regarded as attractive and biblical, both about Pharisaic and rabbinic Judaism. One can only marvel how radically this appraisal differs from that of Jesus. According to Matthew uh, you know, 23, Jesus got, got, got it wrong. And according to Matthew 5.20, when Jesus says, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you shall no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Hagner says, see, Jesus got it wrong, or the Bible got it wrong. Jesus got it right, but the Bible got it wrong. So then Farnell writes, how has historical criticism managed to formulate a picture of this group so diverse from the one painted by Jesus? Largely through assuming that the gospel writers, particularly Matthew, took great editorial liberties in describing the life of Christ. Matthew allegedly was writing about the church of his day late in the first century. Now, when did I tell you Matthew wrote? Probably late 40s. 60 years before this, many of these guys think Matthew wrote. By comparing Matthew, um, so, so he says, allegedly was written about the church of his day late in the first century, more than about the actual experiences and words of Jesus. By comparing Matthew with his source, Mark, one can reputedly see how Matthew's embellishments were intended to make the Pharisees look so bad. The cause of these embellishments is traceable to the presumed tension that existed between Matthew's community and a noticeable Jewish presence in which Matthew wrote the Gospels. I won't read any more. Uh, anyway, that just gives you an idea of what's going on in scholarly circles today. And uh, some of these guys have some good things to say in their commentaries, and I have to wade through this garbage. But every now and then they, they bring out some good historical, grammatical points, things like that. Okay, to wrap this up, I want to look at a couple of different alleged contradictions in the last five or six minutes. These are pretty easy. I don't expect you to remember all of these things. Some of you will study them and remember them. You'll make good notes in your Bibles, which you should, so that you can go back to, to these uh, when you need to. But what I've learned over the years is when I have heard somebody defend Christianity or defend, you know, against this claim of contradictions, then when I hear somebody attack it, I may not be able to bring it up at that particular time what the answer is. But I remembered that I heard it. It's like when I was in college and I would hear stuff about uh, about evolution. I would say, well, I don't know what the answer to that, situ that, that particular issue is, but I know I've heard it, and I know there's an answer. Just because I can't bring it up from the memory banks right now doesn't mean there's not an answer. So it, it helps to front-load you 
on, on what these issues are. So one claim is there's a contradiction between Matthew 10, 9, and 10, where Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples as they're going out to take the gospel of the kingdom to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and Mark 6, 8, which is talking about the same event. In Matthew 10, 9, and 10, Jesus says, uh, don't take gold or silver or copper in your money belts. Don't take a bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. For a worker is worthy of his food. Now, if you think about it, Jesus isn't telling them not to take sandals. They're going to wear the pair they have. He's telling them not to take extras. When he says, don't take two tunics, he's not saying go naked. He's saying, don't take extras. Don't take anything with you. You're going to wear the tunic you have on. You're going to wear the sandal you have on. But don't take an extra staff either. You'll take the one you have. Um, In Mark 6, 8 then... Uh, we're told he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. So people will say, well, in Matthew he says, don't take a staff. In Mark he says, take a staff. See, he's contradictory. No, if you understand what he is saying, he's telling them not to take extra stuff in Matthew. Mark is just summarizing it and telling them not to take anything more than their one, their one staff, their one walking, uh, their one walking stick. Okay, I had that slide out of um, out of order. Matthew ten nine. Um, let's look at another one. This is one that gets brought up. In fact, uh, I mentioned him earlier. Um, uh, let me see. What was his name? William Lane Craig uh, brings this up. See, Jesus got it wrong in Matthew thirteen thirty two. This is this is by, by, uh, botanically incorrect. Jesus says in Matthew thirteen thirty two regarding the mustard seed, he says, This is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Well, the complaint here is that this is a factually erroneous statement because the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. And so before we jump to that conclusion, uh, remember, Jesus says this. He's talking about this. If he spoke a lie, he's lying about it, then how could he be sinless? So this isn't just some small factual discrepancy. This goes to the integrity of the Gospels. Can, what can we trust? What can we not trust? And can we trust Jesus to say that, uh, which is actually true? So how do we understand this? Well, there's a couple of ways in which this has been handled that are legitimate. One of them is in an older work published back in the late 19th century by uh, R.C. Trench called Notes on the Parables of Our Lord. And in that he says, This seed, when cast into the ground, is the least of all seeds, words which have often perplexed interpreters. Many seeds, as of poppy or rue, are actually smaller. Yet difficulties of this kind are not worth making. It's sufficient to know that small as a grain of mustard seed was a proverbial expression among the Jews for something exceedingly minute. See Luke 17.6. The Lord in his popular teaching is just using a common idiom of the time. So that's one possibility. I think the Greek grammar is a better answer. And because in the Greek... In the Greek, see, the least is this word, mikros, which is an adjective, 
And see this word here, C-O-M-P, that means it's a comparative. It is the smaller of the seeds. It is not a superlative. It is, Jesus It doesn't say it is the smallest. He's not making an absolute statement here. He's making a comparative that compared to these other Compared to other seeds, it's the smaller. He's not making an absolute statement. So grammatically, he's not claiming that uh, when you compare it to all seeds that exist uh, on the earth, it's the smallest. That is not what he says grammatically. And Ryrie puts it this way. Another fact to note is that the word smallest is actually comparative, not a superlative, and should be translated as it is in the New American Standard and the New English Bible, smaller of all the seeds. In other words, the Lord did not state an absolute. The mustard seed is absolutely the smallest, but place the mustard seed in the class of smallest seeds. So what appears to be a contradiction on the surface actually isn't. And then we have uh, one last example is one uh, related to the blind men at Jericho. So I'm going to show you the different accounts. Matthew 20, 29 to 34, uh, is recounting Jesus. uh, We'll get there in a couple of weeks. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now, we'll just look at those first two verses. So what do we see? The statement is when they went out of Jericho, and second, they run into uh, two uh, blind men. And that's Matthew's account. Now, Mark's account says, now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho, so Mark agrees with Matthew that he's coming out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's only got one blind guy there, Bartimaeus. What's the solution? Is that Mark is just talking about one of the two blind men. He's talking up, going to record what happens in relation to Bartimaeus. He's not saying there was only one there. He is only talking about one of them, so there's not a contradiction. But the other thing is, both Matthew and Mark say that Jesus is coming out of Jericho, but in Luke, Luke says that it happened as he was coming near Jericho. He is approaching Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road uh, begging. So how do we resolve what appears to be a a major contradiction uh, uh, here? One is that the the men were pleading with the Lord as he entered Jericho, but they weren't healed until he left. That's that's one solution that's that's offered. But the one I think is more likely is that there are two Jerichos. There's the old city, the ruins of Jericho, and then there was the new city, which was the city that was there at the time of Christ. It wasn't built on top of the tell. Uh, if you've been to Israel with me, you've been to that tell in Jericho. And so uh, Jesus could have been coming out of the old Jericho on his way to the new Jericho. That's another very plausible suggestion as to how uh, this is explained. They're, they're writing from different, different uh, perspectives. And then I put one more in just for fun. This one is always brought up. 
is that Luke got it wrong. Luke 2.2, he identifies the the, uh, census that was called for by Caesar Augustus at the time of the birth of Christ is taking place while Quirinius was governing Syria. The only Quirinius we know of in history is a Quirinius who was the uh, legate in Syria uh, who began in 6 AD, probably 10 years after Jesus was born. However, Quirinius is not a strange name. It's not an unusual name. There were a number of people named Quirinius, and there is some evidence that there was another Quirinius who uh, was in the area of Syria serving in the bureaucracy uh, 10 years earlier. Than, than this. So there are, and just because we don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. Uh, for many years, critics said that the Bible was wrong. There existed no such people as the Hittites, and, and that was used as a crowbar to, uh, or as a fulcrum to, to attack the Bible. And then in 1927, all of a sudden, we discovered the existence of the uh, Hittite capital in Bogazkoy in, in Turkey, and all the critics had to uh, eat crow. So just because we don't know an answer to what appears to be a contradiction doesn't mean there isn't one. It just because numerous contradictions have been pointed out over the years, and uh, yet when we get enough information, we find that the, the Bible is always substantiated. Nothing's ever been found to disprove the Bible, and there are always answers to these alleged discrepancies. So we can have great confidence in the Bible as the inerrant, infallible Word of God, breathed out by God for us. Now, we'll come back to this topic several more times in the uh, coming months because there's just so much going on. I just don't have time to to read through the literal tomes. Two books that Farnell and Geisler have edited are the size of small yellow pages, if you can remember what that used to look like. Okay, or the old Biblia Hebraica, they, that just is huge. Six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred pages, and it's impossible to digest two nine hundred page books in four weeks. I can't do it. Some of you think I can, but I can't do that. I can only leap small buildings, not tall buildings. It takes more than one bound. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together to study through the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, infallibility and inerrancy, and to have our faith strengthened by an accurate understanding of your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to you, that we to us, that we can know you, and that we can know things truly, even though we may not know them exhaustively. And Father, we pray that our confidence in you will be strengthened from this study, and our confidence in your word will be strengthened, that we know that we can rely upon it no matter what the circumstances. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.